Welcome to Murderers and Monsters. Before we begin today, a brief warning. Contents may be disturbing and language may be explicit and inappropriate for young listeners. So listener discretion is advised. The day was August the 7th of 1887 as the procession wound its way into a rainy Macon, Georgia, headed to Rose Hill Cemetery on the hill above the Oatmuggie River. The line of mourners was more than a mile long, and as it reached its destination, numbered at least 2,000 people. As the nine caskets were readied for burial, this would mark one of the worst family massacres in Georgia history, a story people would still remember 136 years later. Today, we will be talking about the Woolfolk murders. Richard F. Woolfolk married Susan Moore in 1854. Her father was a superintendent to a factory in Macon, Georgia. Both were from prominent families. Richard graduated from the University of Georgia that same year, and they would go on to have two daughters, Floride and Lily. Richard had originally come from North Carolina and had come to Bibb County to try to make his fortune. He settled about 12 miles outside of Macon, Georgia, near Tobosofke Creek. At that time, the area was extremely rural, Nothing like what we know Macon to be today. It was there that he purchased at the, a 1,000-acre tract where he built a plantation. He would also become key to the early growth of Macon, Georgia. It was on this plantation where Richard and Susan's final child would be born. Thomas G. Wolfork was born on June the 18th of 1860. Shortly afterwards, his mother Susan passed away. It was said that she never fully recovered after giving birth to Tom. She was buried on the grounds of the plantation, and her grave was marked with a holly tree. Richard, soon after Susan's passing, sent all three children to live with Susan's aunt in Athens, Georgia. And they would live there until Richard remarried in 1867, at which time he sent for them, yet only Tom would return. Over the next 20 years, Maddie Howard Wolfert, Richard's second wife and Tom's stepmother, would give birth to six more children. Richard Jr., sometimes called Dick, Pearl, Annie, Rosebud, Charlie, and baby Maddie. It is said with each birth, Tom became more and more resentful of them because he believed they threatened his inheritance from his father. As the firstborn son... He felt that everything should pass to him in the event should his father pass away. Now, with that being said, the way things were back in those days, the boys were the only ones considered in that situation, with the expectation being that the girls would eventually marry and have their own families. Now, at this time, I would like to include a bit of background on what happened between the time Tom's mother, Susan, passed away and before Richard married his second wife, Maddie. As the Civil War began and after Richard had moved the three children to Athens, he then joined the state troops. Here he became captain of Company A, which was also known as Ross's Battalion. After the war as the captain, he returned to a war-torn home, which was in total economic chaos. It was during this time when he opened the first hardware store in Macon, Georgia. It was called Wolfork & Company. It was around that time when he met Maddie, who was the daughter of a very wealthy family in Macon. 
She was also a graduate of the very prestigious Monroe Female College, and it was this marriage that made it possible for Richard Wolfert to establish himself again as a gentleman of society in Bibb County. He was able to reestablish his home, but unfortunately his hardware business failed. Yet he was able to get the plantation back up and running. I've read that it was because Maddie's father had bought the farm and gifted it to her as a wedding gift, so that that meant the land was free and clear once again, although this was never confirmed. Now, during the time all this was happening, remember, Tom and his sisters were living with the aunt in Athens. This would be Aunt Fanny Moore, and Tom adored his aunt, and he was there for the first seven years of his life. Aunt Fanny would marry an architect, and they were fairly well off. Tom and his sisters were well taken care of, and his aunt doted on him. It was not easy with it being during the time that it was, with the war-torn state. But Fanny lived in a nice house, which still stands today, on Pulaski Street in Athens, Georgia. To give just a bit of history of how the state was around this time and even before, um, I looked up on Wikipedia a little of the uh, history of Georgia. And it says, on January the 19th of 1861, Georgia seceded from the Union, and on February the 8th of 1861, joined other southern states to form the Confederate States of America. Georgia contributed nearly 120,000 soldiers to the Confederacy, and was about 5,000 Georgians, both black and white, joining the Union Army. The first major battle in the state was the Battle of Chickamauga, a Confederate victory, and the last major Confederate victory in the West. In 1864, Union General William Sherman's armies invaded Georgia as part of the Atlanta Campaign. The burning of Atlanta, which was a commercially vital railroad hub, but not yet the state capital, was followed by Sherman's march to the sea, which laid waste to a wide swath of the state from Atlanta to Savannah in late 1864. These events became iconic in the state's memory and dealt a devastating economic blow to the entire Confederacy. After the war, Georgians endured a period of economic hardship. Now, with that being said, in Athens, where Aunt Fanny lived, it was not as poverty-stricken as other parts of Georgia. They had chickens and farm produce, and life was much easier there for Tom and his sisters. At seven years old, Tom then returned to live with his father and new stepmother in a virtual wilderness compared to what he was used to. He also received little attention with the running of the plantation, the babies being born. He was basically left to himself. And this brings us back to where we were around 20 years later. Now, as to how people viewed Tom Woolfolk, he was described as a sharp, cunning, unscrupulous fellow and an obstinate, eccentric, cranky sort of a person. There was even a quote from Georgia Bird, who was married to Tom for only three weeks, that said, He's not crazy. He's mean. He's the meanest man I ever saw, and there's nothing too mean for him to do. However, in the book that I read, that's not how their relationship was portrayed. But we'll get into that in just a bit. Now, when he visited his Aunt Fanny in the June of 1887, she described his behavior as bizarre. She said he seemed paranoid, 
pacing the floor and carrying a pistol. He also would talk nonsense, and she was worried about his mental stability. Tom had started many business ventures, all funded by his father, who was said to be very successful, but Tom just couldn't seem to make them work. He tried running a separate plantation, managing a store. He opened a grocery store, also failed at all of that. He just couldn't seem to get anything to go his way. Tom didn't have friends as much as acquaintances and seemed to be focused mainly on money and property. He just couldn't seem to get any of that for himself. Some people he associated with said he spoke a lot about inheriting his father's plantation, but with all the children from his father's second marriage, that seemed less and less likely. At the time of the incident we are about to discuss, it was said that Tom's father had refused to fund any more ventures and was actually making Tom work to earn money like any other field hand, and he was upset about this situation. This brings us to the night of Saturday, August, August the 6th of 1887, between 2 and 4 a.m. Nine members of the Wolfhook family were brutally murdered with an axe. Richard F. Wolfhook, 54, Maddie Wolfhook, 41, and six children, Richard Wolfhook, Jr., 20, Pearl Wolfhook, 17, Annie Wolfolk, 10, Rosebud Wolfolk, 7, Charlie Wolfolk, 5, Maddie Wolfolk, 18 months. And there was also Temperance West, who was Maddie Wolfolk's aunt, and she was 84 years old. Now, what I'm about to read you is basically what you'll find on just about any Wikipedia page um, that you look up concerning this case. It says that the only inhabitant of the farmhouse that was not slain was Tom Wolfolk, who, before daybreak, sought help from neighbors, claiming that his father's family had been murdered and that he had escaped death only by jumping out a window. When Wolfolk then returned to the house before anyone else got there, he later claimed to have moved room to room to confirm that everyone was dead and that he heard the unknown killers exit the back way, slamming the fence gate behind them. He then washed himself and flung his blood-stained clothing down a well. Within hours, several thousand people had rushed to the Wolfolk home, and a coroner's inquest was held on the spot. Suspicion immediately focused on Wolfolk. He had specks of blood in his ears. There was a bloody handprint on his leg. He behaved oddly, showing no emotion about the tragedy and appearing more apprehensive than grief-stricken. And his explanation of why he alone had survived seemed unlikely. There was no evidence of forced entry or theft, and the coroner's jury therefore concluded that Wolfolk was the murderer. But even before the verdict was rendered, the sheriff had quietly conveyed Wolfolk to jail to prevent the angry crowd from taking their own sort of revenge. The murders electrified Georgia and the nation and were the subject of immense newspaper coverage. The press even nicknamed Tom Bloody Wolfolk, and the case was the most publicized criminal proceeding in Georgia's history. Now, considering what I just told you about the murders, 
And that is just what that is about what every website that you look up is going to say. I've done a deep dive, and they all say basically the same thing. However, I read a book by an author named Carolyn Deloach called Shadow Chasers, The Wolfolk Tragedy Revisited. She was a historical investigator and spent more than 20 years investigating this case. I desperately wanted to try and reach out to her just to see if she would speak to me about this case, but unfortunately, she passed away in 2020. Her book, though, is fascinating, and it will definitely give you pause about what the internet tells you and about what her research reveals. You see, the first person to hear that something was amiss was Emma Jones. She and her husband Aaron worked on the Wolfolk Plantation. It was in the hours before dawn when the dogs barking woke her. She knew it was too early to get up, so she waited for someone to quiet them. Yet that didn't happen. It became louder, and then more dogs joined in. She knew something was wrong, so she went to the window to look for the lantern that the family kept lit in the house, but it wasn't on. Then she began to hear the screams, and she knew those voices. It was the Wolfolk family. I questioned how she would have been able to hear those things and then realized that back then, there was no such thing as air conditioning or even fans. The only air you got was from the open windows, especially in the hot and humid summer months in Georgia. So it was the farm workers who first found out that something had happened. Tom actually went to a field hand named Green Lockett's cabin to try to get help. Tom showed up only in his underwear and socks yelling about someone killing his family. Lockett sent his son to alert others. When they finally went back up to the house, they thought they heard sounds coming from inside, but no one would go in. So Tom went, and when he returned, said that, quote, don't know what it could have been, ain't nobody breathing, end quote. Word spread like wildfire, and by daybreak, there was almost a thousand people at the Wolfolk Farm. It didn't take long for people to be convinced that the murderer was Tom because he was the only one left, and that just didn't look right. The Wolfolk house was a simple one-story with a hallway down the middle and two square rooms on each side. When the men in charge arrived, they decided to go into the house to see exactly what had happened. Inside the house was stifling. The smell of congealed blood and bodies was horrible. The coroner examined each body, and these are his findings. By all appearances, the captain was first to receive an axe blow to the frontal lobe of his skull, cutting it off. Then Maddie appeared to rise up in the bed and was hit in the back of her head, crushing her skull. The baby Baby Maddie was between the adults and had an axe wound about three inches long from the center of the top of her head to the back. It appeared that Pearl's body had been placed on the foot of her parents' bed. She had encountered the murderer in her bedroom and then struggled with him in the hallway where she died. That would explain the blood smears on the walls and the pool of blood out there. It took several blows to stop her 
There was a cut on her forehead and on the side of her face. The force of the blows knocked her eye out. The two boys lay on the floor. Dick's wounds appeared to be most severe, with a single blow dissecting the left side of his face. Charlie received two blows, one on the top of his head and one over his right eye. In the second room, the girls' room, little Annie appeared to have been trying to get out the window when she was murdered. Little Rosebud was struck twice in the face and once in the back of the head. Aunt Tempest was killed as she slept with her hands folded neatly together under her cheek. Being almost deaf, she never heard a thing. At the coroner's inquest, which, in, which is an inquiry into the circumstances surrounding someone's death, in this case it was a group of people who would ultimately decide that with no sign of anyone else at the house that Tom must be the one who had murdered his family. There was only one set of bloody footprints going from body to body, and Tom admitted that they were his. Included in this group was a reporter named Morgan Folsom. He was also a correspondent with the Atlanta Constitution and would be the one to record and report this case at the time. When everyone had completed looking through the house and made their decision, Tom was secretly taken into custody and away from the house. He was taken away from the people who would potentially, potentially harm him. There was an overwhelming need from the onlookers to bring swift justice for the beloved family, feeling that there was no need for a judge or a trial. And that's where we're going to end it today for part one. Um, this is a really kind of in-depth and long case, and I wanted to do it justice. Um, there's a lot of names of people um, in the defense, uh, people in the uh, prosecution, um, just a, a bunch of different witnesses and things like that that are going to come up in this next part um, concerning Tom's trial and things like that. So I want to make sure that I get everything included as it should be. Um I've really enjoyed reading this book. It's been super interesting. Um, and I hope that you guys will hang in here with me until next week. Um, I'll bring you a part two and we'll talk about the trial and things like that and get a little bit more of an idea of do you think you did it? Do you not think you did it? We'll see. But I like to thank you guys for just joining me again on this Saturday. Or excuse me. It is not Saturday. On this Sunday afternoon. Um, thank you for all the support. Uh, please follow, download, like, review, all the things to keep us going. Um, it's been a great day here. We've actually made some uh, homemade apple jelly. Um, and it's it's been a really good day. So I hope that your day has been as well. But that's going to be all for us this time, guys. Um, thank you to everybody. Um, and I love you guys. I'll talk to you all next week. Bye.